Welcome to Sports and Society, episode 58. It's been a little while. Um, how you doing, Kyle? I am doing well. It has been a minute, and I'm wondering if your admiration for Serena Williams has only grown in recent days. Absolutely. Um, for those of you that don't know, my wife and I just had a child, and uh, the fact that my wife's pregnancy lined up very closely with Serena's pregnancy, uh, just I find it to be very special on some level, but also the fact that she won the freaking Aussie Open in the first trimester of her pregnancy is perhaps the most amazing sporting accomplishment of all time. I'm willing to put it in that conversation. Yeah, not only am I not going to challenge that, I'm going to say it probably is. Unless unless it's happened before and like we just didn't know about it, you know, with other female athletes, but yeah, learning that piece of news and then just adding to her uh, appeal as one of the greatest athletes that's ever lived on so many fronts. So, um, but it's good to have you back. Good to be back. And I will say, uh, just to continue on the Serena thing, I was reading an interesting article today talking about um, how she's always confronted these, these things about her being mannish or being like a man. Um, Yeah. And that, this pregnancy thing has how that's played into that narrative is interesting. I think in some ways and that um, she in no way needs to defend herself for us, but it is interesting that hopefully this will stop some of this ridiculous conversation that we hear. Yep. Yeah. There's not much that can point out ridiculous better than biology. Yeah. And uh, never mind the fact that I remain pretty confident she's going to come back and win again afterwards, which is just amazing. Yeah, as if she needed anything else to play for and, like, there wasn't enough that could get her motivated uh, through her worldview and how she's forced to negotiate the world in some ways. It's like, come on, bring it on. I would imagine she has that already, like, spurring in her. I'm sure. Oh. Um, I actually just watched the end of, um, did you ever see the documentary Serena that came out two years ago? No, I didn't. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty well done. It, it's just kind of a, you know, in, inside the life of Serena Williams view and follows her for all of the 2015 season, which culminated in her losing in the semifinals of the U S open. Hmm. And that's when she took the rest of 2015 off. Um, but I found or what was most intriguing about it to me was how not uh, fabricated that motivation she has is. Hmm. It, it, it really is a part of her everyday life. And so you like see a Gatorade commercial, you know, that kind of like plays up that motivation she has, you know, from the female point, from the uh, African-American point of view, from the, I mean, all the views she has and is playing against her whole life, um, the poverty point of view, it's it's part of her daily life. And so she has marketed it, rightfully so, as she, as she has saw fit, but it's also part of her daily life, um, which also was fascinating to watch when she lost mm-hmm. and how like all of that's still sitting there. Mm-hmm. So like what, it, what exists as a motivation also exists as like, a horrible way to exist in 
in a loss that she has to make sense of all of that. Um, it, it's a well done doc. It's worth watching. It reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you saw that Tiger Woods announced that he's gotten the go ahead to, to start chipping again. And he posted a video of himself doing so. Um, and I, it raises these questions for me. Like I, I just want Tiger to give it up. Uh, and yep. yet he just can't. And I don't, I don't think it's healthy. Uh, but I wonder if it's that same kind of competitive thing, right? Uh, that and for better or worse, you know, like these athletes that define themselves by their games and and can't do anything else. Yep. Yeah, the identity part of it seems to be deeper than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and for better or worse is kind of a cliche way of saying it, but it's pretty accurate. Like, <laughs> it's it's who and what they are in this game and. I was just having a conversation recently like that to be a professional golfer or a professional tennis player requires a abnormal amount of selfishness. Hmm. Uh, in my opinion, like to be that good at an individual sport requires like, yeah, I matter more than the people around me hmm. and like my craft matters. So like this workaholism that, doesn't only exist in tennis and golf obviously it's throughout the whole world but uh it's it's, it's like pinpointed there in some way well this is uh for those of you all listening we've decided to try and keep these a little bit tighter so i'm going to transition here because it seems natural to this aaron Rodgers piece that uh mm-hmm. espn put out uh and his uh it's like I found it really an interesting article in terms of him coming to grips with the fact that the football wasn't how he kind of wanted to identify himself anymore. Right. Um, yeah. So what was your main takeaway? There's like a thousand things to talk about in that article. For me, my main takeaway was Aaron Rodgers was my favorite NFL player before I knew this. And it only makes me like him more now that I've read the article. Yeah. Yeah, I I couldn't help but think too that there, the way he talked about spirituality and religion and fundamentalism mm-hmm. uh, appealed so much to even my own story, and I'm sure my own story and his story is the story of millions of other Americans uh, that grew up like post moral majority takeover of America. Um, so I found it on like that really broad scope to be fascinating and something to even relate to. Um, but yeah, just the overall introspection and there's a lot of humility in that article too. Um, it's really interesting too. And like, I, it didn't make me think I wanted to be friends with him. Like, I'm not sure he'd yeah. be the most fun guy to hang out with. Um, but I do have a, just a, I would like to go get a beer with the guy. Yeah. There was a, and an anecdote she mentioned um, at the start where she said when she turned on her recorder for the mm-hmm. interview and he pulled out his own recorder <laughs> and turned it on, which made me think if no one wants to interview you or me, but if we were ever to be interviewed, I like to think that we would turn on a recorder to <laughs> record them as well. <laughs> well, just the, like the, the little anecdote about how, he came to her place as opposed to them right. meeting in this carefully controlled environment. Like it's just, he apparently is it's just unheard of for that to happen. It's and not something I'd ever thought of, but I imagine as a writer, it just kind of throws you off your entire game. Yeah. 
and she's one of my favorite writers right now uh she's she's in my like top 10 of like i kind of seek out to see what she's been doing hmm. um she's really great on um around the horn as well hmm. she does really well on around the horn but i loved how her awareness of what was happening too and willingness to mention it mm-hmm. uh, like normally their publicist says you're going to meet at some place that makes my client look good uh, and you're going to describe in the first two paragraphs where the interview is taking place and that's going to have an effect. And so she's like, here I am describing my own place. <laughs> it's like, dang it, Aaron Rodgers, well played. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, but it is, uh, I found it just a really compelling article and the, I never would have guessed that he and Rob Bell are essentially like best friends, which is it, it, it changes my whole worldview in some ways. Say more about that. I, I just, it's just like these people that you know from completely different places. And then you find yeah. out that they're hanging out together and it just, uh, I don't know. It just totally does not fit in how I think was thinking about them beforehand. Yeah. Yeah, the Rob Bell part, I think, correlates nicely with your comment of I don't think I want to be best friends with Aaron Rodgers, but <laughs> it's just as I don't want to be best friends with Rob Bell, but I would absolutely have a drink with Rob Bell. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Um, it, it, makes, it, it makes me wonder how he fits in that locker room because there's been always been talk about him like not quite fitting with, yeah. in the locker room. Um, and I can totally see that. I mean, A, he's – you know, the religion thing alone would be enough, I think, to create a schism with a large number of people. Um, yep. But just the willingness to take a step back and be thoughtful and then not just give an interview where he admits feeling empty after they won the Super Bowl. I mean, that's people in like the NFL has to hate that on some level. Absolutely. That I mean, that pushes us back against the mantra that every team and the league wants their star players to have that the only thing matters are championships. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's almost similar to like a boxer, like betting on themselves. Um, mm-hmm. it, it digs through the paradigm that we want to be dominant into a, a more real association between athlete and the sport itself. So um yeah, I only loved it, but it's also you have to imagine the owner of the Packers was like, geez, Aaron, like, do you really have to say that publicly? <laughs> That's always the interesting, too, because you know that there are these owners that, um, you know, they're the owners that are eat the party line up and they s- sell it. But I think a lot of these owners are really smart folks. So, I mean, I think about Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban knows that championships aren't everything. And so right. I'm sure that having like he would appreciate if Aaron, if Mark Cuban owned the Packers, I'm sure he would appreciate that statement. But he wouldn't want it to happen in public. He'd be exactly. like, let's 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 you and I we'll go have some wine and talk about that. But right, right. Like in, when we're in public, we're going to talk about it this way. Right. Um, hmm. Well, speaking of uh, boxing, what you th- what's your uh, after thoughts of the Mayweather McGregor thing? I have many, but the one that's most prominent is it would take me 4,000 years of being a teacher to make what Mayweather made on that fight. Yeah. 
Literally. The math breaks down to exactly 4,000 years. <laughs> <laughs> so I would have to be a, a high school teacher for two millennia to make what Mayweather made in about an hour and a half of punching someone. Um, which I feel like is enough of a contrast to make the point without elaborating on the point. But um, yeah, I think it was the spectacle we all thought it was going to be. Uh, Mayweather has never been a full knockout fighter and McGregor never stood a chance. And I think Mayweather did what was best to make as much money as possible, which was to extend the fight 10 rounds. That was. I did read an interesting ESPN piece the other day where someone was saying we've got to stop congratulating McGregor for making it a fight and recognizing that Mayweather essentially allowed it to be what it was, that he yeah. could have ended it much earlier. Yeah. Yeah, it could have been half a round or at max two rounds, but no. he That fight was as long as Mayweather wanted it to be no matter how mm-hmm. it played out. Um, but yeah, I, I guess it's just worth pointing out that that's that's where we are in boxing. That's where we are outside of boxing in a sports society in general. That uh, well, and in general, we should never mention Floyd Mayweather on this program without also mentioning that he's uh, an abusive individual uh, and should not be allowed to compete. He's been to jail for abuse. Yeah. Like, he has gone to prison for abuse uh, and doesn't seem to throw any shade outside of, like, an occasional sidebar article where people mention it. But it apparently has no effect on the public imagination and consciousness of who and what Mayweather is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a, it is... You know, I have never had this thought before, and I don't know why, because it's an incredibly simple thought that we should probably all have. Um, but we should be way more pissed about Mayweather than we were about Michael Vick. Um, people matter more than dogs do, and yet we seem to care more about dogs than we do about people. Yes. Yeah, I, I would imagine the reputation of Mayweather is much more lauded than the reputation of Michael Vick. When even Ray Rice, I think, um, I think that on some way it'll always be easier for Ray Rice to rehab his image than Michael Vick. Yep. Uh, anyway, what else you got this week? Well, maybe extending off the reputation theme, uh, have you been paying attention to Maria Sharapova at all in the U.S. Open? She's actually playing right now. I know that she's continued on and looked pretty good. She knocked out one of my favorites in that first round. So, Yeah. Um, I find myself really pulling for her. Yeah, and I, I, f- I find the negative comments against her just really short-sighted. Hmm. Um, what is, why do you think that is? You know, it, it, it's hard to to doubt that she knew to some extent what was happening. So like, you know, I, it's hard to also come out and call her a complete liar. You know, I mean, we don't have enough evidence to do that just as we don't have enough evidence to say she had no idea um, what was happening. Uh, I think the way 
WADA works requires us to accept a little bit more of a gray area. I think the way that the drug industry and sports works requires us to accept a little bit of a gray area. And then a player that despite drugs obviously has the talent to compete. And then on top of it can have all of that happening in the background and all of this naysaying mm-hmm. and negative stuff and really horrible, horrible things have been said and written about her to still come out in front of the whole world and play a sport like tennis that is so such a mental challenge and something that like forces athletes to be so vulnerable and to do it well. Mm. Like it's like, you have to respect this to some extent. Um, if not to a large extent, if you're a sports fan and value the things that I do in an athlete, like she's embodying a lot of it for me. So I find myself very much on the side of Maria Sharapova in this one and would love to see her make it to the final or even win. Hmm. Um, and the way Caroline Wozniacki is speaking out against her, I want it to be Wozniacki and Sharapova in the final. I want Sharapova to win in straight sets. Because <laughs> Wozniacki sounds like a Republican right now, and it drives me crazy. Like, have allow for a little more complexity in your comments. Like, of course it's easy to just say, like, oh, someone's a cheater. They shouldn't be allowed to play. Like, okay, like – yeah, so says every seven-year-old on the playground. Let's like, let's have a little <laughs> bit more enlightened conversation here. Um, Interesting. So I'm on the side of Sharapova on this one. Hmm. I haven't followed it enough to have a strong opinion about it, so I'm interested. I'm intrigued by that. Those thoughts. So, yeah. we'll see. Anything else from the U.S. Open you've noticed or? Well, I know we had this um, this guy got kicked off for making yeah sexist comments, which right man, we can't seem to get past that these days. But yeah, I don't not particularly. It's all, U.S. Open is always interesting for me, um, and I think the biggest takeaway from this year's U.S. Open is because I, I say it's interesting to me. It's interesting to me in that it doesn't interest me very much. Uh, yeah, not in the way that any of the others do. Um, and this year, particularly so because so many of the big names are not present. Mm-hmm. But I will say the only storyline that I'm really following at the moment, other than with the half view on the Sharapova, is uh, Venus Williams, uh, who I just, you know, how can you root against Venus Williams at this point? Right. Yeah, I love it. I, the Williams sisters are so likable. But. Uh, I'm anxious to hear more about this SB Nation Deadspin thing. Okay, so I'm intrigued to know um, what the relationship between Deadspin and SB Nation is because they, Deadspin has been posting a number of things highly critical of SB Nation recently. Um, and uh, it's I don't know what that, again, maybe it's just a competition thing, but SB Nation is not looking good, and there's a lot of their stuff about uh, essentially exploiting a workforce to create a bunch of money uh, is now mm-hmm. coming to light in a way that I think we all knew was the case. Um, yeah. But it's getting more and more kind of ugly as time has gone on. Um, and so, you know, I think that originally um, it was kind of okay, and now Vox has taken it over. Um, and it's, a, I think, 
it's a little ugly at this point. And there's a class action suit filed against SB Nation. Uh, and I'm just interested to see kind of where that goes because SB Nation has kind of held themselves up as, I think, somewhat of the future of sports journalism. And I think that may be on the line right now. Yeah, they definitely have the mantra, like, for the people, by the people kind of thing, don't mm-hmm. they? Um, yeah, the the part I saw about it was uh, Mike Verkov, Verkanov, um, who is a curator and writes the daily uh, email called Redef uh, that comes out of ESPN. And he used to write for SB Nation. That's how he got his start. Uh, and he left SB Nation because he found it to be exploitative uh, and said that anyone that's trying to make a living writing for SB Nation is going to be exploited to a large extent. Well, yeah, and just as some background, I think, you know, a number of the pages, most most of the writers on SB Nation are not being compensated. Um, the The most pages... Uh, that have so SB Nation has these like each team has their own page type thing, and most of those page people that run those pages are paid a small amount. What I was seeing was uh, in the neighborhood of like you know for a professional sports team we're talking six hundred bucks or something like that a month, uh, and required yeah. for putting out themselves putting out a number of articles and getting other folks to create articles to the extent of two to three a day with a lot of pressure on them to do so. Uh-huh. Uh, so there's no doubt that there are people that want to do this. Um, mm-hmm. However, I think we're getting to that point where um, there's a little more coercion than is reasonable in some of these things. Right. Yeah. And the element yeah. of them promoting themselves is like the future of sports journalism is what makes mm-hmm. it all so significant. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I do have to say, like, if it, there, there's a lot to love about it. Like, I love the cycling SB Nation site. I think they've got an incredible community. Um, but I kind of wish it wasn't part of the larger SB thing. I think they, I wish they could do it on their own in some ways. Right. Right. <laughs> anyway, well, I'm intrigued to see where it goes because I don't think. I don't see it going away, and I think it may well be the future of things. Right. And if Vox is signed on, that means they have massive amounts of money behind them now. Yep. So, Which is interesting, because Vox is not making a bunch of money. All of that money is investment capital from some billionaire somewhere. Right. That believes in Ezra Klein. Right. I think it's multiple, multiple billionaires. Yeah. Well, it's, it's another one of these interesting things in terms of, like, politically, I don't think you and I have a problem with Ezra Klein. Like he seems to right. be lean the way that we would want, but right. that doesn't mean we can approve of his business practice. Can't disapprove of his business practices. Exactly. Um, well, do you want to, you want to hit up one more or do you want to move on at this point? Um, let's move on. Okay. That's right, folks. We have made it through the news without talking about the NBA, even though Kyrie Irving got traded between the last time <laughs> we talked and now. <laughs> now we did talk about it. Yeah, we, but, we almost made it until you just mentioned it. 
It, it had to be mentioned. We we have to give our celebrate our accomplishments, even if it means breaking the accomplishment to do so. This is, this is you know, celebrate the fact that I haven't had a drink in two months by having a drink. Okay, <laughs> man. Because right. part of my thing with Kyrie is I don't think there's that much to talk about. I I think there's plenty to talk about, but it's not uh, not it's mainly from a sporting aspect and not from the society yeah. aspect. So this um, is true. Other than just to say good on you, Kyrie for player power here. Yeah, absolutely. Do what you want. Yep. Be happy. Be a happy individual. <laughs> yep. Did I, do you watch game of Thrones? I do. So Sarah and I have been, that's right. While Sarah was nursing the baby last night, we were watching Joffrey get killed. Um, That's pleasant. <laughs> but it's, uh, I was just struck yesterday while watching about how no one in that entire world is happy. Yeah. There is no happy character in, in that entire series. I'm trying really hard to think if there is, and I can't come up with one. Uh, no, there's no one happy. I mean, like, all you think if anybody was going to be happy, it'd be the rulers, but no, they're clearly not happy. And maybe the peasants are happy, but the way that the rulers seem to treat the peasants, none of the peasants are happy. So, right. you know, what ifs? It's all good. Yeah, maybe the only people are, that are happy are the ones we don't even see. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Tell me about uh, cricket, man. What's going on? So, the media rights for the India Premier League are going to be bidded upon uh, next week. And there are a couple things that are significant about it. One is that the first time that the media rights came up for bidding for the IPL, they only were able to garner the attention of four major outlets, none of which were American-based. And for this round, they have over 20, uh, with the likes of Facebook, Amazon, Twitter, Yahoo, ESPN, NBC Sports, ABC Sports. Uh, everyone is there. Hmm. Uh, and so everyone is going to be bidding or at least there to pay attention to how the bidding plays out. Hmm. And the first contract for media rights, which was a 10 year contract for the IPL was something like $130 million. Uh, and they're planning for this to settle at around 1.5 to 2 billion. Damn. Um, which would put them above major league baseball. And the NBA is at 2.5, and the NFL is at 6. Um, so it puts them right there as a major player. Obviously, the outbid baseball on this would be massively significant. Uh, and then if you think that if an online outlet like Facebook, Amazon, Twitter gets it, um, how much of that would be like a, a really loud shift toward what everyone already kind of thinks is happening. And obviously ESPN is almost the same thing as like an Amazon now. Uh, mm -hmm. But this, this would be just further evidence, you know, that like there's no such thing as television anymore. Right. There, there's only yeah. 
what you can live stream or, or get whenever you want. And this, if I, I, I have no idea who's going to get it or why they would want it or however, but I just have to think that like the way Amazon is operating in the world, that this is going to be an Amazon product in the next five, next two to three years. That's interesting. I was thinking that uh, I wouldn't be surprised if NBC winds up with it and they wind up doing what they're doing with the premier uh, English premier league with that um, and run like a separate subscription service and then putting it on their channels as well. Right. That seems they seem to be more willing to take a risk on those things than some of the other major players do, which I think uh, is going to be to their benefit in the long run. Right. They can actually work this out too, to where the matches could be played at like seven, eight a.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time. Mm. You know, so uh, I I think that might have a, a slight draw. Yeah. Uh, to get a New York and a Chicago and Atlanta market for it would be significant, I think. Uh, hey, man, I'd, I'd pay 50 bucks to get access to uh, the IPL. Or just you to watch it how I lo- watch English Premier League, you know? Like, it's like a Saturday morning thing of like, yeah. get up early and just have it on. Like, that would be really fun to be able to get up in the morning and have IPL on. Mm-hmm. That'd be cool. Hmm. But what's going on with cycling? Uh, so we're right in the thick of the Vuelta España. We just had stage 15 today, I think. Um, looks like Chris Froome is solidly in control, but we got another week, so we'll see where things pan out. But um, racing has been relatively good. Vuelta is always interesting because, man, they have some really steep climbs. So, yeah. I mean, we're talking like 17% average over – you know, 5k, which I can't even fathom how difficult that is to ride a bike up. Yeah. Um, um, but then kind of the biggest news in the sport right now is that one of the world tour teams, Candel Drapak, um, one of their sponsors pulled out for next season at the last moment. It looks like they're the high likelihood that they're going to have to fold for next year. Hmm. Uh, and this is interesting for a number of reasons. A, because it kind of exposes the difficulties of the cycling world in terms of how dependent they are on these sponsors that are always dropping in and out. And so that there are very few sponsors that have been in the sport more than five years. Um, and then uh, also it's interesting because Candel Drapak is led by perhaps the most um, polarizing force in uh leadership of pro cycling and the former Jonathan Valters who mm. was a pro cyclist and was with, um, you know, doped was when Lance was around was one of those guys uh, has since come clean. Um, and a lot of people are not kind of happy with the holier than now attitude that he brings. And mm-hmm. he does seem to have a little trouble upholding his own, uh, uh, idea of what's right and it's just an interesting place because there's a lot of people that take a perverse joy in him being in a bad place and yet i think it would be bad for the sport if he were to leave the sport at this point right that's an interesting phenomenon of when it seems that the voices at large gang up on someone in the sport that is good for the sport Mm -hmm. that's it's not unique in this situation at all that 
seems to happen quite a bit. But I think it often happens because that person is not a very likable person. Yeah. Um, so I think that in the same way that I would want to have a beer with Aaron Rodgers but not be his friend, I don't want to be Jonathan Valder's friend. I think the guy is probably kind of insufferable to be around. But right. that doesn't mean he's not good for the sport. Right. Um, well, that's what I, I read an article yesterday about how a, a tennis player getting fined for improper conduct uh, is actually really good for tennis and that there's mm-hmm. usually a spike in ratings and a spike in interest whenever it pops up and that um, someone like Kyrgios uh, is actually does a lot for the game. I believe uh, it. And so you, as, a, as a fan or as a fellow player, you can hate on him, but one must also recognize that it's that same spectacle element of sports that people will watch for various reasons. And that's a strong reason to turn and watch. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. Well, shall we talk about positions? Let's do it. Okay. Uh, so this week, kind of our main topic is that of positional hierarchy. Um, so this came to my mind because uh, Odell Beckham Jr. wants to be the highest played player in the NFL, uh, but he's a wide receiver. And so there's a bunch of folks essentially just laughing this off. Um, right. And, I, you know, we probably don't think he's ever going to get there either. But it's an interesting sentiment to like pose that question of why shouldn't he be the highest played player in the NFL? Right. My first question then is, is there a statistic in football that equates with or is synonymous with wins above replacement? I don't know. I or like plus minus, you know, something like that that says like when this person is on the court, it's statistically obvious that this team is more likely to win this game. Hmm. You know, I have not seen anything like that, but then I haven't watched football in the past three years, so I'm not up to date on that. Right. Yeah, I don't know either. Um, I will say that while we're talking about this, fun fact, Albert Pujols is the worst player in Major League Baseball this year. <laughs> I saw the headline. I didn't read that article. Oh, it's it's amazing. He like is statistically the worst player in Major League Baseball this year. <laughs> And what, one of the, like, highest 20 paid? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, he's got to be making 20 million or close to 20 million this year. <laughs> That's awesome. MLB's good at stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, so I guess for me, the... That's the first part of my interest in positional hierarchy. And I guess when I'm talking about positional hierarchy, I'm talking about how we pay a player based on their position and what they bring to the game. And then I'm also interested in the social element. Uh, And even to some extent, you could probably extend this into talking politics Hmm. of how much of a sway a player has on the society around them, both immediate and at large based on their position. Hmm. Uh, And so my question to follow up your question that kind of, grasps or codifies all those things I find interesting is that would Colin Kaepernick be as effective 
on the public consciousness as he has been had he not been a quarterback. I I would have to say no. I mean, I think it's, but I think there's several layers to that in that. Uh, yes, he made this kind of a th- stir because he was in such a leadership role, um, but also um, it's such a skilled position that yeah. um, there are just so few people that can do that in the world that make mm. it clear that you know this blackballing or, or whatever you want to call it that's happening now is actually happening. Like if he were a running back, I think it'd be really hard to make the argument that he was being blackballed and same with just about any other position, just because there's not, there's a bigger pool of people for all of those other positions. Right. Yeah. I thought of the evidence of what you're saying. I agree with you hundred percent is Matthew Stafford's contract. He just signed. Mm-hmm. So he's going to be the highest paid quarterback. Is that right? That's right. Yep. And he's never won a playoff game. Yeah. He's not particularly good. Right. But, to be a nine-win quarterback makes you one of the most rare athletes on the planet. Mm-hmm. So there's a certain amount of uh, rarity or uncommonness that comes with being a quarterback in the NFL. And so in that way, yeah, I, my answer to my own question is that similar to you, like, no, it wouldn't be as big of a deal, but I'm also pretty certain that it's not because he's a quarterback. Um but it's a part of the conversation, I think. Well, this is this is raises some interesting questions for me about um, do we um, do we think positional hierarchy matters because there are fewer people that are good at that position? Um, mm, and so, that's like, a great question. Like, so then, are there fewer really good pitchers than there are outfielders? Um, mm-hmm. And then, but it's interesting to me because I want to extend that and say maybe basketball flies against it. And then I think that we're seeing right now, there are many fewer um, good big men in the world of basketball than there are point guards and shooting guards and combo guards. And yet those positions are still more important than the big man in modern basketball. Right. Right. It's such an interesting question to think about. If the reason someone is getting paid what they're getting paid is because they can do something that no one else can do. Um, like, is that always the case, you know? Like, mm-hmm. is that is that universally true? Uh, and, you know, I think of my example of comparing a teacher's salary versus Mayweather, <laughs> you know? Uh, there's a lot of people that can teach high school. There aren't many people that can go 50-0 and 0 as a professional boxer. Um I but know. I think it's got it. I think what what's missing from that is the value component, right? Um, Where so is th- the value and yeah. how is it crafted? Because I think we've seen that. You know, I think there's an argument to be made that um, as hard as it is to be a professional pitcher, like the best professional pitcher, it's perhaps even harder to be the best catcher um, in professional mm-hmm. baseball. And yet, we don't care as much about catchers because i don't think that their perceived value or real value uh is as high as a pitcher is right well this is where i would think like 
a catcher can be substantially better than all the other catchers in Major League Baseball and not have as much effect on their team as a pitcher that is better than all the other better pitchers in the league. Which is a, it's such an interesting, I think we say that, but I mean, I'm not sure I believe that because I look at, you know, I think, what is the Red Sox catcher? Veritek? Is that yeah. right? I think yeah. Veritek and Yadier Molina were the reasons that their teams won the World Series, and yet they never got paid in the way that the mm. pitchers or Ortiz or yeah, yeah, Pujols did. It's probably also, too, just that element of what can be measured. And so I think how a catcher calls a game is almost impossible to quantify. Hmm. You know, I'm, I'm sure there are quants out there and sabermetric folks that are interested in this of like Yadier Molina's calling of pitches and when and why and in what situations and how that compares to Buster Posey and how that compares over a decade and all that kind of stuff. Like that would be really valuable, you know, quant information to have. Whereas compared to Clayton Kershaw getting strikeouts and outs is really easy to quantify. Mm. But the extent to which those strikeouts are because of the catcher calling the game in a certain way, based on the scouting report of each hitter Mm -hmm. and where they set up and the confidence the pitcher has in them and the relation like that's all much more difficult to to quantify yeah but i think there's this other component to it as well that it was interesting as in the cycling world um albert pujols is not albert excuse me um alberto <laughs> contador albert pujols on a bike man that would be hilarious. i was trying to picture that that was really funny um uh, Alberto Contador, who's about to retire, uh, is probably like the last couple of years was never going to win the Grand Tour, like never going to win the Tour de France. He was not the best, mm-hmm. um, yet he was still the most marketable star in right. professional cycling. And so there was still this huge benefit to having him on your team. Right. Uh, and so I think about Pujols, like all the statistics say that he is the worst player in baseball this year. Um, right. But he keeps getting starts. I have to think that that's at least in part because the Angels are making a bunch of money off Pujols jerseys and people are there expecting to see him and so they're buying tickets because of him uh, and all of these things that, I mean, he's probably going to get paid way better than he should get paid for his performance. Right. Um, yeah. It's just, there's so much that goes into how much people get paid. <laughs> yeah, it makes me think about a conversation I've been wanting to have on here that I thought would, could be a topic at some point. We've talked about winning before, but it's a clear example to me of a way in which winning isn't everything. Mm-hmm. You know, when the sports are part of a market and when they're part of a capitalist system, it's no longer just about winning. It's about marketing a product and so in that way Pujols falls into the it's probably still really marketable um, mm-hmm. enough to where there's even like interest enough to write an article about how bad he's doing mm-hmm. like that seems to be evidence that he still has a role to play in Major League Baseball but I'm intrigued too I want to talk about uh, soccer a bit here and obviously we've seen some astro- absolutely astronomical fees being paid for players this offseason. 
Um, mm-hmm. And it's almost always the uh, offensive players that get that. But every once in a while, you'll see a, a, a defender get really paid. But uh, what do you think about that? As someone who coaches and plays soccer, are, is the striker really that much more important than the other players? I want to say yes, yeah. That hmm. um, I, I think there are if you get any grouping of four defensive backs from anywhere in the world of any training method at all, as long as they're good enough to play in a professional league in Europe, you could take any four of them that are in the top 500 backs in the world and put together a pretty good back line. Hmm. Whereas if you take the top 100 strikers in the world, and put them alongside each other, Ronaldo is still going to score more goals than 98 of them. You know, hmm. uh, Neymar, Messi, and then you can extend the list on down to maybe like 10 to 15 other guys. And it seems to be somewhat of like a quarterback type thing in the NFL. That there's something special about those guys that can score 25 goals a season um, that you just everyone has the opportunity to do that you know like mm-hmm. it's it's a pretty egalitarian universe to exist in like the goal is there in front of everyone and everyone has the same chance to get the ball in it it's just there's something about these strikers that is special hmm. uh, that i think that's where i am on it i'm not entirely sure i don't know what do you think about it i think i kind of agree with you but i think it's interesting because i do um I think there's a yes and no to that and that I think that there are certain players that have fallen into that category where I would say the, the Ronaldo's, um, the Messi's, uh, maybe even like the Griezmann's and, and the Benzema's uh, mm-hmm. might even put Rooney in that category. But then I think there are a number that, um, so I think Neymar and Zlatan, um, I want to put in a different category. And I think these guys are incredibly skilled but they don't have the same goal-scoring thing that those other guys do. And so they're still getting these incredible contracts. But I don't think they're worth it because I do agree with you that I think that there's just something – it's not every striker that has that. You can be a great striker and not have the goal-scoring thing, but it's Mm -hmm. the goal-scoring thing is what makes it worth it. Mm -hmm. So in the end, I think that – Neymar's contract is going to turn out to be a total failure because I don't think there's he has that same uh, thing. I mean, like, there's no doubt in my mind that Suarez uh, is an incredible soccer player, um, probably better on some level than Fernando Torres was when Fernando Torres first came to Liverpool. Yeah, but Torres just scored goals, and that's all that matters in the long run. And so I would rather right. pay Fernando Torres than Luis Suarez. Right. Yeah, it makes me wonder the role that the fan base has and the expectations on ownership. Well, again, it's probably that marketability on some level. Like, you know, right. you're willing to pay $200 million for Neymar because you're going to make it back on all your mar- merchandising stuff. Exactly. Or even, even someone like Zatan, like, it's probably a way to assuage a lot of fans and say, we're trying, we're trying to score goals. 
mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, especially if you put money behind it. By the way, this is a momentous thing I'm about to say, Kyle. Are you ready for this? Hit me with it. Um, you can you might be able to guess what it is, given that we're talking about soccer and it's momentous. But um, I think it's time for Arson to go. Whoa! I already knew what you were going to say as soon as you I, said I, I have something momentous to say. I, it was. I, I'm sure you did, but yeah, <laughs> time has come. Yeah the the world's changed out from underneath him. I think. Yeah, well, and he's lost the team. I think, which when you lose the team, there's no coming back from that. Yep. Um, Cash, can you even imagine being an Arsenal fan without him? No. And what what really bothers me is that as soon as he goes, we're going to get on this treadmill now where we're going to have a new manager every three, two to three years at at most. Yep. And I I just don't want that. It exhausts me just to think about it. Yeah. Maybe his final gift of his legacy will be that Arsenal fans won't accept a treadmill. That would be be so nice, yeah. That would be a cool thing to leave behind. It's hard to imagine who could take it. They'd have to hire somebody, and this is the hard thing, is that in order for that to happen, they'd have to hire someone who's not a big name. And I don't know that at this point they could do that. I think they have to hire someone who's going to be at the very top. They can't afford to take a risk on somebody at this point. Right. Interesting. Anyway. Well, do you have anything else on positions? Well, I just uh, want to take a moment here to say that I think that perhaps, as always, the NBA is a step above everything else because I do think that money-wise, the NBA has is the least – focused on position in terms of how they value a player. And that's partly because I think that they're um, we're starting to see much more positionless basketball in the NBA. Mm-hmm. And so players just get played on their capacity, not on right. what they do or what position they play. Capacity is a great word for it. So, I mean, like, yes, if you're an incredible big guy, like Anthony Davis is going to get paid more than mm. – you know, um, Devin Booker is, uh, although who knows, maybe Devin Booker will surprise us. But that comes down to Anthony Davis, not because he's a center getting paid more, but because he's in just an incredible basketball player that benefits right. from being a center. Right. Yeah, and Steph and Chris Paul and LeBron all add to the, the complexity that is mm-hmm. finding a number that works for each player. Mm-hmm. When the NBA, more than any of these other leagues, seems to have guys willing to take less than the number to get there. And that's, of course, because they're all getting much more guaranteed money than just about anybody else. Right. Other than baseball, where I don't think baseball players care that much about championships. So that's... Yep. That's maybe I want to let's explore that at some point. Let's, I don't want to get into it now, but I do think that because baseball playoffs are so like there's no way of knowing who's going to win. Um, mm-hmm. Like the idea of a baseball player taking less than the, the maximum that they could get to be on a winning team makes no sense because there's no, uh, there's no even guarantee of competitiveness in baseball. Right. 
Anyway. Cool. You got anything else you want to talk about? I think I'm good there. All right, folks. Shall I do my I think first, or you want to go first? Uh, is yours positive or negative? Uh, it's kind of ambivalent. Yeah, me too. You go ahead. Okay. All right, folks. It's that time of year again. Football season is starting. Yet again, by choosing not to partake in the sport that is our true national pastime at this point, I'll be putting a barrier between myself and much of the rest of society. I refuse to go back to football, but it is not easy. I think that I think giving up football has made me happier, but I will always feel a draw back to it. My weekends are much more enjoyable now that I'm not trapped in front of a TV. My relationships are based on healthier footings because I have more time and energy. I do not feel guilt and anger from watching sports in the same way. But so many of my friends are still football fans. There are social cues that no longer mean anything to me. Having to explain why I don't watch football leaves me exhausted. I still love the strategy of the game and the feats of athleticism. And so much of my past life was spent thinking about football that these remnants will always remain and that time now just feels wasted. I remain strong in my opposition to football, but it hasn't gotten much easier. Every weekend presents another opportunity to give in. We're in a very similar spot on this one. Uh as someone who actively seeks out not to watch football, I bet I watched an hour and a half of football this weekend. <laughs> <clears throat> just by being in social situations where it was a centerpiece or even just like a byproduct of being together. I mean, positive news on this, Kyle, is that uh, if you have a child, then you won't be around other people, so you won't have to watch football. So. Hmm. <laughs> this is the number one reason people should have children. I'll have to think about that. Although it does bring another human into my mix. <laughs> Although I, I am a little surprised <laughs> to hear that you have a big enough social circle that you're out on Saturdays where people are watching football. I, <laughs> I gave up on that a long time ago. Well, I should be very clear. Like six of my seven friends were watching football and I happened <laughs> to be with them. <laughs> Six of your seven. <laughs> All right. Well, what, what you got, man? I think that I think that the United States men's national team will be irrelevant for the rest of my life. <laughs> Without a junior program that is as exploitative as European club teams is, we will not have the necessary infrastructure in place to produce a top five or even a top ten national team. Indeed, we have to compete with football, baseball, basketball, and other sports, something other countries do not necessarily have to do, but we also lack the quintessential piece for procuring top-notch soccer players, that is, playing every day in highly competitive environments since the age of four. It is obvious to me and should be to everyone else, the way to become a good soccer player is to learn the unteachable skill of touch by simply spending the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours on the ball. Learning how the game works, learning defensive schemes, learning how to play in different formations are all valuable, but we will not field a team that can compete with Spain, Italy, Germany, and Brazil until our players know nothing but soccer as life. Pulisic, I feel, is the first glimpse of what that player might look like, 
But how many ballistics are there out there in the U.S.? Obviously not many. The other conversation here is about our youth club system. Purportedly, Neymar's first club made several million on his transfer fee as they have rights to a finder's fee. And until a similar system is entrenched here, mm -hmm. we will only know what it feels like to have a pretty good national team. Well, first off, thanks for dropping Malcolm Gladwell. You know, you're trying to get my blood pressure up here. I know you love him. Uh, it's. I think it's interesting because I, when you first mentioned it, my initial response was, "What? What does relevancy mean? Like, what would make mm -hmm. them relevant?" Um, because I think they're already much more relevant than they were, you know, ten years ago, even. Mm -hmm. Um. I'm thinking kids all over the world wearing a U.S. player's jersey. Hmm. Well, they'll probably do that because we'll throw a bunch of them away and they'll be given to China, but our um, African kids, excuse me. But That's a fun way of thinking about it, Brad. <laughs> um, but I, I don't know. It's On some level, I, don't, I almost don't want us to pursue that level of excellence. Right. I'm almost I'm not saying I want it I think I agree with you yeah I think it's just more of like a realization I'm coming to terms with like I I think for the last 10 years I thought by now we would be a top five team or top 10 team in the world um but I'm, I think I've given up on that it's just not going to happen and I think there's so many other things that go into that you know the MLS being better I think is part of that um, the domestic money in soccer has to be better. Um, but I think that we're seeing the move towards kind of what you describe in that, you know, it's much less common these days for kids to be multi-sport athletes so that all of the significant high school basketball programs don't want their kids to play football and vice versa. Right. Um, you know, even in ultimate Frisbee, now we're seeing like middle school kids playing ultimate Frisbee and it's totally changed the level of the game at the college and pro level. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that, you know, this is slowly but surely happening. Uh, and I would not be surprised if we get there much sooner than uh, right now we think is possible. Hmm. Well, I'd enjoy it if it happens, but I'm not counting on it. I don't think I would enjoy it. it. It just provides something else for me to stress out over. And uh, maybe we need to have this conversation about most stressful sports to watch, but I've got to say soccer is <laughs> number one on that. For sure. It drives me insane. There's no sport where stuff can go wrong quicker than soccer, I feel like. And the majority of the game is failing. Yeah. Well, let me take that. The one moment that's not that way, just to rub it in out for Alabama fans, was when Auburn returned that field goal. Um, <laughs> that was like, but that's like soccer all the time. Is that's ha every time there's a goal in soccer, it's a devastating moment. Yeah, indeed. All right, dude. Cool, man. Well, thanks for listening, y'all. We'll be back hopefully on a regular schedule at some point soon. Although. Obviously, my life is more complicated. Kyle's back in school, so uh, we'll keep you up to date, but we'll be back talking about more bullshit around the sports world, and you know, we'll probably be talking about media outlets more than the actual sports most of the time. So. <laughs> Indeed. Thanks, Kyle. All right, thanks, guys.